Staying Alive in Paragliding, a podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker from Cape Town, South Africa, the owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding and a competition pilot of 23 years. Real podcasts for real pilots to learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. South African uh, legend status is definitely earned by a man called Andre Redsford Alberts. He deserves one of the top titles of any flying person ever in South Africa. He's a guy who's been on the podium of the PWCs and Superfinals more times than he can count. He has been on winning tasks in Superfinals. He's the only person who has taken away the trophy of the 2013 PWC that happened here in Portable, South Africa. He's a businessman. He's a family man he's a thinking man and he's an extremely intelligent man i don't speak much more because i would like to introduce andre well Steffi, maybe we must uh, get a second opinion on that intelligence my, my wife and my family may disagree with you um <laughs> i, I uh, thanks for the glowing uh, introduction sure of it sure most of it's not uh, not earned so i've been doing world cup for 17 odd years, I had my first World Cup in 2003, uh, which for many of your listeners probably be the dark ages. You know, the, the, those bad old days in, in heavy places with dangerous gliders, the progression has been, in my opinion, although I was unhappy about the cancelling of the, when they banned the open class gliders with the R11, after the mm. World Championships or during the World Championships in, in Pedraita, I think that, what was that, 2011, I guess. So, you know, the, the gliders were getting better all the way through the period. You know, I've seen it from, from full-on prototypes to the, the two-liners, um, R10 and R11. I think I flew two seasons on, on uh, the Ozone 10.2 and the R11 before they, they banned them. And I was one of the people that was extremely negative about taking away the, the open class. And that was partly because I'd taken quite a lot of trouble to figure out how to fly them really fast. Mm-hmm. And, and Andrew was actually the one that uh, predicted that with the reintroduction of serial class, uh, one, one would have to remember in days gone by, there were two classes in, in a World Cup. You would have the open class and the serial class. And Andrew mm-hmm. was, in fact, the, the only pilot, to my knowledge, to ever win a World Cup outright on a serial class win. So he won a World Cup in, in Montalegre on an um, APCO Bagheera. probably tell you how, how many times they measured that glider because they assumed it wasn't possible to beat the open class on a serial wing. So Andrew was actually the one after they banned the uh, open class um, in 2011 that predicted that the gliders would become as uh, would perform as well safer and I think we've sort of arrived in a in an era now where that's true I still have my old comp wings um, I never ever could sell them I don't know I had some kind of emotional attachment to them so I've got a got a garage full of open class comp wings and I think Andrew got it right because Probably around about the time the Boomerang 9 came out and certainly uh, Boom 10 and 11, 
and the the other manufacturers equivalents uh, probably reached the the performance of of the R11 which which I guess would have been the de facto standard although I don't believe um we've managed to to get the top end that the R11 had so so I think we're in a better place in general you really had to want to fly the open class wing wings of 10 years ago they they tended to be a handful and and you had a high incidence of people getting hurt the other thing i think that happened with the introduction of the zero class it opened the door for for more people more quickly mm-hmm. the progression it shortened the time that you could actually get good enough to qualify and not come last at a at a world cup so yeah in general i think uh, just as far as the technology is concerned definitely is a whole lot safer i mean sounds arrogant but you know we refer to our serial wings as as school gliders mm. you know simply because of the number of times i've been terrified on a on an open class glider that falls apart and doesn't easily recover so for an aspirant comp pilot if ever we look back and it'll be the golden era of of safe competition flying now i know you know for some people that's still a an eye opener people go well what we now call competition class but uh, i think it's it's the safest um top end equipment we've ever had and and it's easier to get your head around to progress into flying the current top end gliders because they're just so much safer they just inherent stability and safety that you you could never have hoped for in in the open class so that's the equipment mm-hmm. the style all right i just want I, i just want to say that you are completely attached to a glider emotionally uh, i wanted to comment on the reason why you haven't thrown any of those bloody gliders out of your garage and that's because we every time we are flying those bloody things we are making love to them so it's like kind of throwing out a woman who's so good she doesn't talk back she doesn't give you a hard time and she's there how do you throw her away you cannot <laughs> Uh, Steffi, I think I'm just going to say no comment. Let's talk about not throwing ones out. The the one glider in particular that's incredibly special in in my arsenal, the the boomerang four that I have. It mm-hmm. was I bought it from uh, one of the German team pilots to World Championships in um, I think it was Valle, uh, not Valle de Bravo, uh, Governor Governor do Valadares. I probably mm-hmm. pronounced that incorrectly. Um, it the team the the gen team all had um when the first boomerang force came out that these were special because they you know the color interface um span wise they it's normally stitched these were these were glued together so my my boom 4 has got an almost perfect profile it's the smoothest surface um simply because they they figured out how to glue them together they never ever went into full production in that uh, configuration because it's just simply too expensive to manufacture but um well, so in terms of interesting co- I, I, yeah um, i never realized that yeah so yeah, go on, go on. my one my one was it was just the sweetest glider uh, you know the boomerang 4 turned out to be a, a bit of a handful i think uh everyone in south africa except for me this might be a bragging right i don't know if it is as the only one in south africa not to throw their backup on a boomerang 4 um 
Um, right. And I'm, I'm hoping that's because mine was special. <laughs> well, I can tell you, I don't know which one it was, but at a comp, at Portable, Neville Hewlett put up a sign saying for sale boomerang uh, for 500 rand. Um, I promptly saw the sign, ripped the thing off, paid 500 rand. For the international today, 25 euros. I bought a brand new glider because Neville didn't want to know anything about that glider. He flew it once, shat himself, and even Neville shitting himself needs something. And you have bragging rights then, Andre, because kudos to you. I think it was four, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Yeah, look, I mean, some might argue I should have thrown my backup on a couple of occasions, but but I survived the boomerang for it. But it is, it's just special to me because it, because of the fact that it's a rare glider. Not many of them were made that way. So, you know, one could follow up with, with Jen and find out if any of them are still in existence. But I, I have a pristine one in my cupboard. It's got a couple of numbers on, but other than that, it's, it's perfect. In fact, all my gliders are, I don't know what I'm going to do with them. I was thinking of maybe, I don't know, there's some charities that make handbags out of them or, <laughs> we'll have to do something. That's right. But anyway, so so the you know the because of the safety of the gliders now, the the flying style has changed. So you you sort of constrained. Uh, you know, if you think of the performance envelope on on these gliders, they're pretty much all the same. The top end comp wings nowadays, uh, there's very little to differentiate them. You know, in the past. You, you might have something that's a little bit quicker, significantly quicker, but you sacrificed the uh, you know, ability to, to climb. Or you would have a perfectly climbing glider that didn't have the top end, or you know there was some balance. The, the open class, there was still enough difference between the gliders that if you harnessed the potential of the wing in the right circumstances, you could make, um, make a difference in competition. Uh, my impression is that that that's changed. You know, a little bit the way uh, windsurfing and, and sailing went to to standard uh, Olympic class. You know, some of the Olympic classes uh, where the yeah. equipment has to be exactly the same. We're, we're sort of in that world now. Uh, what it does is, you know, we said the positives are it opens the door to to more people because it's just simply safer. So to get to reach the highest level of competition is easier and therefore it, it makes it more competitive so that's a that's a good thing the downside is the style of flying that has changed in my opinion you know the the yeah, super yeah. final of last year in brazil um uh, you know my from a personal point of view after you know i achieved everything i wanted to in competition flying i from the outset and we can talk about it a little bit later you know, when it comes to progression and, and goal setting. Uh, the only thing, once I went to my first World Cup, all I really wanted to do was win a World Cup because that seemed to be the holy grail of of paragliding. You know, that's where I set my sights. So I would have loved to have been world champion, but, you know, world champion is a much more complicated thing in terms of a team sport. You've been, Steph, I mean, you know what it's like. You were with us in Bulgaria. You seem to sound like your ambitions have waned a bit. I mean, it takes a big man to uh, achieve success at any kind of sport and then say, you know what, I've got a family. I'm quite happy to stop right here and I'm going to stop competition flying. And you've done that. So it's not completely true that I've, that I'm, I've stopped competing. What, what's changed is the motivation for it. 
you know, so so when I was going hard, th- there was one ambition, and that was to was to win a World Cup. Okay, and uh, and everything I did, uh, all the preparation, all the practice, all the competitions I did were were geared towards achieving that goal. Uh, once I achieved mm-hmm. it, you know, you you got con- conflicting priorities. So you know, you got young children. It's a bit lame to to be a paragliding um, for 20 years, you know. You, so so for me, enough was enough. I, I I reached my goal to extend it beyond that. Um, in terms of chasing as hard as I as I was at the time, seemed unreasonable and unfair in, in my personal circumstances, you know. So. Um, I I didn't I throttled back in the sense of not worrying so much about performance anymore, and I started using um, World Cup in particular just as a as a personal holiday. It's an important thing for me to go to World Cup because it keeps you keeps you honest. You know, just when you think you're getting good, you can go to a World Cup and very easily come last. I mean, you know, we've got World yeah. Cup champions that. That finish in in the bottom hundred. You've got uh, national champions that on any given day can come last. You've got European like Yasin Savov. He was a charge type of guy, and you know he would win tasks and win competitions, but he he could also come very close to the bottom. So World Cup is unforgiving in that sense. You have brought up a very interesting theme today. Um, you maintain cross country and competition flying are not actually very different at all. You've had a big think over many years about how they differ, the psychology that comes into it. Over the years, I've had many, well, certainly local pilots um, come to me and and challenge the the whole the whole reason for for wanting to compete. And you know, I've heard the assertion often where people say they don't want to fly competition because they. They believe it will force them to take unnecessary risk, and uh, that could result in, you know, it's a general negative attitude to say competitions are bad because they make you do things you otherwise wouldn't do. I completely disagree with that sentiment, 100%. There, there are people that end up doing that, but that's a that's a you know personal thing. The, the, the problem is not competition. The problem then is those pilots that don't know better or don't understand the the potential of using as a learning tool. And and I feel I can say that confidently and with some authority because for me, every competition, uh, you know, I, I did my first competition with, with 25 hours on, on my really? book. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, I, and I had the opposite example. I, I was clueless and I had... Senior pilots come up to me, and on two occasions, it was at Port Petersburg, um, on you know windy conditions, and I was keen and and mad as a hatter, and, and I had senior guys telling me to step down. They said, "No, you're not flying today," just simply because they understood it was outside of the um, parameters of what I could safely do. And my argument yeah, is, sure. uh, and you, I, and then obviously I was frustrated. So then you'd have a conversation with them and go, "Well, why can't I fly?" And then someone would explain to you, you know. You, you haven't looked at the weather report. The wind's coming up. It's going to it's going to be violently thermic. There's uh, there, there were strong winds forecast in the afternoon with a chance of thunderstorms, and and I was oblivious to all of that. You know, in terms of safety, I've learned more at competition 
about staying alive. Um, I learned more about staying alive uh, flying competition than I did with my peer group on the mountain. And, and, and this is an important distinction. Um, generally, your, your peer group, unless you've got really smart, experienced people in your peer group, sometimes your peer group can be really bad for you. You know, we've, we've got lots of examples where people do um, unreasonable things and get hurt or, or in fact die because their peer group didn't have enough knowledge to stop them doing something stupid. So I'm, I'm a firm believer in competition for a, for a learning experience. So that's the first thing about competition. The second thing is the, the idea that cross-country is different from competition in some way. And, uh, and the thing about, and why I say that is if you go and look at um, all of the paragliding uh, world records, okay, some of them are um, speed related, you know, I've attempted a couple of those, you do triangles out and returns, but all of the really, the iconic flights, you know, remember when Neville flew that 500 for the first time? For sure. You know, so, so if you ask people what's the epitome of, of cross country, I mean, we're close to 600 kilometers now in Brazil. Um, all of the world records for, for open distance and in fact, the, the free distance turn points um, and the out and return distance records, the world records, are all held by um, acclaimed World Cup pilots. So, you know, and then some people say, yeah, but that's an extreme form of, of cross country and it's not necessary to do the, the extreme form. But I mean, where do you draw the line? So if you ask me what's the ultimate achievement in cross country flying and paragliding, it's got to be those big triangles the guys do in, in the Alps. You know, once again, all of those triangles, um, I think I'm not sure what the longest one is. Uh, yeah, 325 by my friend Volder Tom from Zilla Valley. And, um, yeah, but uh, the guys are sleeping close. Carry on. Yeah, so, you know, 325-kilometer triangle is mind-boggling. Yeah. Uh, and that, you know, and they're doing it, most of those are doing it solo. I know the, you know, the Brazilians are flying their, their open distance records in groups. Um, but it doesn't matter, you know, to, to fly a 300-kilometer triangle in the Alps on your own, is spectacular and 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 it's a cross-country flight uh so you have to ask the question well then how come all those records are held by um top 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 world cup competition pilots and the answer is because you know if you're good enough to fly a world cup the chances are you you are a good cross-country pilot because by definition a lot of the flights we we do in world cup would be um would be lifetime you know, some of the tasks we flew at the Superfinal last year would be a lifetime achievement. Any one of those tasks, a big triangle, a 120K triangle, would be, for many, many pilots, for many cross-country pilots, would be a lifetime achievement. You speaking of only top, top pilots who are making such big cross-country flights. What about, if I threw you the question, what about the feeling of one human being competitive versus another having absolutely no uh, competition spirit as such, if I can call it a spirit, or any need to compete with someone else. Andre, you and I, uh, I mean, you're much more chilled out than me, but 
don't ask you and me to be next to each other at the traffic lights wanting to check how fast your beaking 200 horsepower bike is and my uh, 140 horsepower bike if I can hold on to you until we're doing 150 k's an hour. We are both competitive. Some people go cross-country flying every single day but are not really interested in competition. What do you say to that? So it's all, all strength to them. I, I you know, I don't mind. I, I don't have to fly competition. So here's my personal perspective. I don't have to fly competition to enjoy a cross-country flight. But it, it, it is true that every single time I go and fly, I fly as hard as I do in any World Cup task that I've ever flown because that's my style of flying. I fly as, as hard and fast as I can. You know, I can't... I can't do the gale hanging thing on, on slopes. I just can't do no. it. And and I can't boat around for an hour when there's five hours in the day, you know. So yeah. so I, I tend to maximize the day if I go flying. You know, the other reason why that happens is that I don't fly very often, you know, since I, you know, I declined flying in favor of family. So I go flying when, when I can and, and I don't... Mm. It doesn't bother me. So, you know, if I'm only flying once a month and and I pick a good day and I have an estimate there five hours in a day, I'll, I'll make sure I get five hours and I'll fly as hard as I do in any World Cup. That's yeah. how I fly. There's no difference between my cross-country flying and my comp flying, which I would then argue is to say, well, the reason I fly competitions is that it's it's organized cross-country. You don't have to worry about recovery. Someone, someone's coming to fetch you. You don't have to worry about safety. Well, you've got to worry about safety, but you don't have to worry if you mess up or you get unlucky that you're going to have a, a nightmare, recovery nightmare. You know, my insurance is paid up, especially if you go to Europe, you know, a helicopter's coming to fetch you if it's bad enough. Um, what better cross-country do you get than that? So I've never had a competitive view of paragliding, and, and, and that was partly uh, because of the, you know, I, I used a sports psychologist from the very beginning. And, you know, through him, I came to understand that competing is not about your competitors. It's about an, it's an internal uh, improvement, you know. So one, if you want to get all romantic about it, you could say it's a, you know, it's a philosophical approach that a lot of the Eastern um, philosophies follows where you, you just want to be a slightly better version of yourself. Competition is a good way to measure that. You know, so for me, competition was not so much about uh, who I was beating. It's only ever been about how well did I fly today, and and that that's probably a result of of the training I've gotten in terms of sports psychology. For sure, and that that definitely that definitely is picked up. I mean, uh, uh, since I've known you, and uh, obviously there came a change from when you were with 25 hours in your logbook and your first comp where you thought you were a big man because everybody who's got a glider above their heads, even if they've just gone off the training slope, uh, thinks that they're a big man and the next thing, you know, and those who survive are those who are there to listen and who are also prepared to say, okay, I, my needs, my personal needs, my very deep inside needs is to go and see a sports psychologist. Then you do that, then something changes. So your thinking changes. And at that stage, you tend to kind of a little bit more right into your unconscious mind. This, these are my parameters. This is why I'm flying. 
um, although you were blanking ahead and you've got an amazing ability to pull away from the pack, you can say bye-bye when you want to. Choose your own line, the same as Russell, um, and just say, okay, this is my race now. I'm going to just take over here. And if I'm not, it doesn't matter. I'm going to land and that'll be the end of this comp for me. That's cool, you know. And so you have attuned yourself to an XC being the same as your flying. Not everybody, Andre, goes out and uh, sees an XC day as uh, I'm going to push as hard as I can. You are a little unique like that. I mean, that. tell us about your experience with the sports psychologist. Tell us how that changed. You. Yeah, so, so I, I, was, I was introduced, as I say, very early on. So uh, I won my first competition at Portable probably in... Uh, it might have been 99, 2000 or 2001. I actually can't remember. I had a boomerang too. So whenever that was, I was introduced to to the sports psychologist by a friend and, and I went to see him. And uh, we were lucky in the sense that, uh, well, you'd be interested, Steffi, with your hypnosis. This guy's an Ericksonian um, hypnotherapist okay. who qualified. He's a clinical yeah, psychologist. Very- he got into the, you know, he's the head of the Ericksonian Institute in South Africa and um, so it turned out he uses uh, hypnotherapy and he'd been trained by one or two, uh, you know, he'd, he'd had paragliders as, as patients before, whatever you call them. You know, so I was lucky enough to, to work with him from the year that I won my first comp, hypnotherapy um, dealing with trans phenomena. Okay, so I also went and bought all the textbooks and read up on it. So, so that's how we approached it. The trans phenomena deal with what you can experience um, under hypnosis. I mean, you would, you would know a lot about it, Steffi. So, and we systematically went through the 14 trans uh, phenomenon and identified um, what, using the trans phenomenon, what were inhibitors and what were, um, what were useful out of them in terms, in a paragliding context. You know, it's applicable to everything. So I'll give you an example, the feeling cold to experience temperature. So you're either going to be, so, you know, when would it be useful to, to tell yourself you're warm and convince yourself that you're warm? Or when would it be useful to ignore the fact that you're cold? Because everyone would have experienced that at some point. If you get cold enough, it affects your, your psyche. You, you know, you, you could become negative about the day just simply because you're cold. So those are the types of things we did, you know. But there are 14 of those. Uh, you deal, with, you deal with everything that can go wrong or right in paragliding. Another example would be, you know, a lot of people have, have stress in gaggles, whether it's competition or not. Some people just can't fly in gaggles. In competition, we very often at World Cup, we see new guys coming to the ranks, uh, hmm. might have, you know, a national champion and they've they've done well in a cat two comp so they rock up at world cup and then they think they have to blow everyone away and they become a real nuisance in the gaggle that happens every year they're not very special you know that's one of the the things about stepping up every time if you but you know the, the gaggle flying is an interesting one because you know what the work i did 20 years ago with the psychologist we sorted that one out early you have to decide whether you associate or dissociate with the gaggle and then, you know, we came up with strategies to decide when you do that and how to do it. To give an example, if, if you're at the bottom, if you get if you fall off the gaggle, forget about it if you're not going to get back onto it. You need to stop worrying about the fact you've fallen off the gaggle and you have to make a plan to, to fix your situation. 
uh, you know, so that would be a dissociation of, of saying, okay, I know the gaggle's there, but I'm going to ignore it kind of thing, and I'm going to do what I have to do. Then an associative approach to gaggle flying would, would be to say, look, I'm in this gaggle now. People have this um, antagonistic approach to competing. They think they have to beat everyone around them. You know, not in a fist fight. You're, you're, flying, a, you're flying a paraglider. You're not fighting with your competitors. So, so the way we handle the association is if I'm in a gaggle, I just think I'm flying with all my mates. I mean, we've all had that experience of you're in a gaggle of your, of your flying mates. It's, it's so much fun. Everyone makes space for one another. No one's cutting one another. Everyone's, then you associate with, with the gaggle. You remove the, the potential for conflict. You know, and that involves being friendly, giving space, but not at the cost of your of your own progression. And and I must say, you know, mm-hmm. the better the the better the gaggle gets, the easier it becomes because you know the, the top guys they don't need to cut people off. They, everyone knows you're trying to get up. Some people climb better than others, but everyone's chilled and relaxed. And it's astonishing how few incidents there are. You know, we we've often had 100, 120 people in a single gaggle low to the ground you know it gets messy but you don't hear a whole lot of shouting and screaming and and that's largely because the guys have decided to make peace with the gaggle you need the gaggle certainly nowadays in world cup you need the gaggle to get around the course most of the time so you have to sit and wait for your opportunity to to make a difference I mean, it's changed so much, eh, Andre? If we have a look at the last years of, of flying, absolutely inevitable that you, uh, maybe not right off the bat of the start, of course, but a gaggle is going to find itself and you want to be part of the guys right in the front there. So, you know, it uh, starts to hit the bar as hard as you can. A gaggle forms itself and hopefully you're right in the front there and that's where you stay and you stay kind of hanging on to a gaggle as best you can until uh, the last glide to go where there's a possible break within reach of goal in one go one transition one kind of move yeah i find that a little bit of a pity in flying actually i find that a little bit um and i'm I'm, i know many many competition pilots are also feeling that this kind of breakaway by yourself kind of thing and as they change the points and the point scoring and as it gets more and more complicated than it was before where we'd all be kind of hey i'm gonna pull my monkey out the pants and i'm gonna show you guys and off you go and you would actually blaze and have a good chance of making it first to go by yourself what's your comment on that eh? so that's exactly i think we started out by talking about the progression you know we spoke of of the, the effect that the gliders have made on exactly what you've just described my impression is you know i, I was always one of the guys that you know i favored a or a ridge run would always favor me because I knew I could keep the speed on um, for longer than most and uh, I could get some advantage. And then, you know, the so the task setting has changed. They, they set like ultra safe tasks. You hardly ever get a ridge run nowadays. Um, they still do it a little bit in, in, in the Alps, um, but mostly, you know, they, they've changed the style of flying. So they there's very little hardcore ridge racing nowadays. Certainly the comps I've been to, you know, might be true in some Cat 2s. But, but then the style of flying, and, and for me, it's just ironic that we're in, in COVID lockdown without competitions because I'd, after the last World Cup I did in Brazil last year, there was one task in particular where I just, the gaggle, the, the gaggle was basically the entire field. Flew 90 degrees off mm-hmm. course just simply because the, the top-ranked pilots went that way. So what happens is the, 
just couldn't do it. You know, I just couldn't do it. So I, I flew the course line and uh, I didn't win the task, but I got 100% of the lead out points. And it was completely unnecessary wow. to, do what they, to do what they did. And I, and I complained. Uh, I, I complained on my blog about it. I was just like, I don't understand why flying has gone this way. But the truth is, the style has now changed to, to that kind of thing, where the equipment's all the same. The barrier to entry is, is lower now. So, so many more people are competitive. And, and they've learned to fly that style. And, I, and I'm not even critical of it. It's just a different style of flying. So, but the problem is, mm-hmm. now, now it comes down to those last few seconds at the end and, and the World Cup must be tearing its hair out because they've been trying to avoid that all along. I mean, half the rule changes have been to try and encourage people to push out early, to encourage people to to take risk. The yeah. pilots have overridden that by by just following the herd, you know. So, so I made a personal call last year. I thought, you know, I said to myself after after 2013, I said I'm going to carry on flying World Cup, but if I can't f- finish in the top third anymore. Or if I'd stop enjoying the style of flying, then and I actually decided I would give uh, World Cup a miss this year. It's just it's just ironic now that there's no World Cup this year. But I'm not the only one that feels that way. Everyone's bleating about the the style. The World Cup style is, and unfortunately, it's filtering down into Category Two comps. You know, because that's the only style. Some guys can't fend for themselves. You know, they they can get a reasonable result at a competition as long as there's gaggle flying. Uh, when the wheels come off and the field is is dispersed, yeah, then yeah. then the really competent pilots come through, and the ones that are still learning to do competition are exposed. And that's not a bad thing. It's just it's not for me. You know, I don't I don't want to. Uh, I guess one one could say I'm uh, I've lost the edge and I and I battle, but I'm I've always been competitive in the thermal, and and I've always had my glide has always been up to speed. So. I just don't want to fly like that. It doesn't make sense to me. You know, you get get in the gaggle. If you climb better than everyone else and you you wide awake, and I'm not taking a single thing away from those. The guys at the top are remarkable. They they are astonishingly good pilots. Most mm-hmm. of the guys in in the top ten or twenty, in my opinion, World Cup would do well in any format. Let them fly cross country. Let them do a speed run. But then there's a bulk of pilots sort of mid-range to the bottom that are figuring it out and part of figuring it out. To a large extent, the, the Brits demonstrated that just hang on to the gaggle and you get a reasonable result. You know, that was a strategy. Get Guy Anderson on the line. You know, he he was, uh, you know, you know Guy Anderson. Don't worry. I'm on to all of that, Andre. I had Honorin okay. Hamad on the phone with me yesterday, got a nice podcast with him. And I just wanted to also tell you, like, as you saying the top, top guys, I just wanted to interject quickly and say, those guys are so focused. At 28 years old, this guy, uh, okay, Felix Rodriguez, who I spoke to also uh, two days ago, he's he got a bloody beautiful podcast in with me. And his, you know, he's 42 years old. It's a little bit older, but still, these youngsters, in our opinion, are they've they they're that side of the fully focused, fully into it, and it's so beautiful to see. You know, it's like passionate to watch that kind of talk and to listen to them. I do yeah. also want to say one thing: you're going to have a big, big problem, and that problem is going to come because you you've just said to me, in no other words, you said, "Well, maybe when you know uh, the enjoyment goes away of the competition flying, dude." 
the day the enjoyment of paragliding goes away from a pilot, there's something wrong with it. That's for sure. Go on, my friend. Yeah, so, you know, the enjoyment doesn't go away, but you, you get stale. So some things, you know, and you, and you, you know, we're talking really at the high end. So, so the, the summary for me is the really top pilots have, have worked a long time. Sorry, I'm just being asked to come and eat, but that can wait. Um, the, the really, really good pilots, the, the, the world-class, the top, top, top guys are astonishingly good. Now, one thing you do have to do is, is differentiate to some extent between the professionals and, and the amateurs, okay? You know, the, the, the French have, have led the way uh, in terms of professionalism, if you want to call it that, in, in the way that they've, you know, you, you can go and study paragliding at university there, you can you get paragliding bursaries, the guys who fly for the national team, you know, Honoro would have explained, I don't know if you went into the, the commercial aspects of, of French paragliding, but... If you really want to see what's going on, you have to say, well, which are the professionals and which are the amateurs? And then you get a picture of, you know, the majority of um, cross-country paragliding pilots and the people that would be interested in your podcast and the aspirant competition pilots are not necessarily going to end up being paid to paraglide. Before you get to World Cup, it's, it's, a, it's an amateur sport. When you get to the very top of, of paragliding, by and large, the guys are, are professional to some degree. They either, like you, have a, um, a tandem operation, you know, they have a school or they're part of a school or they're a commercial tandem pilot or they're a test pilot for a factory. So, you know, it's yeah. like Stefan Wies is maybe an exception, but Ach, Achim Jors, uh, Kriegel Mora, Patrick Barrow, you know, he was a, he's a professional uh, let's just go down this list. Primosh, he's probably not. So, so there's a difference between yeah, flying for a living and uh, and flying as a hobby. You know, I always said if I had to make a living out of paragliding, I would stop. In a World Cup in Reunion, I decided to take a shortcut, which involved to a turn point out on the coast, which actually involved flying over the sea for some section. And then mm-hmm. they stopped the task, and there was a cloud street going out to sea. And I was with one other French pilot. I didn't know who it was at the time. And uh, I just thought, oh, he seems to know what he's doing. He was flying out to sea, so I followed him. <laughs> and then we found out afterwards the task was finished, and, and yeah. he thought the same thing. He thought I looked like I knew what I was doing, so he followed me. So the two of us were following one another out to sea. Eventually, we were oh. at cloud base about three k's offshore. Um, and then I think one of us got the radio going. And uh, realized we were being blown out to sea and we had to push full bar to get back to the beach. Being really real, I thank you very much for your time. I thank you for your deep uh, psychology that you gave us there, uh, the, the tips about the sports psychologist, um, the difference between this XC and comp flying, how you flew your first comp with 25 hours. I love these stories. Absolutely great. Andre Rainsford Albert's been flying over 20 years. One of the guys that everybody in the world looks at with all sorts of wonder. How the hell does he pull away from the pack like that? And see you soon, buddy. Oh, cool. Thanks, Steffi. That was fun.